Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you, whether you're in the room or you're watching us online. And let me just tell you how relieved I am right now because, you know, when you start a religion and politics series, you kind of wonder if anyone will show up for the second week. And so at least there's some of you here. I am very grateful and very relieved, and my bad dreams did not come true. So thank you for being here as we dig into this topic and this series called Talking Points. And if you were with us last week, or if you weren't with us last week, we talked about our very first talking point as a church, which is that we should be able to disagree politically and yet love each other unconditionally. Right? There's room for disagreement in all aspects of politics, and we can continue to serve God together, but we need to be able to love each other unconditionally. Now, that might sound basic, but the thing is, I think it is so rare in our country and our society today. Because oftentimes what we do is we hold our politics so closely and so tightly, and we make it so personal that we have a hard time dealing with all the different disagreements that there might be. You know, sometimes it's we have this loyalty to a particular party or to a candidate or to a position, and we don't even know how to interact with people who come at things from a different side. And what happens is it leads to division and it leads to frustration and it even leads to fear. And that's not at all what God desires from us. As followers of Jesus, we're called to model for our country and for our society what it looks like to be able to disagree on the issues and yet love each other unconditionally. That's the most important thing. You know, really the big question for each one of us as we're in this election season and really just any time in our life, is to ask, are we able to put our faith before our politics? Can we look critically at the issues, at the platforms, at the parties, at the candidates, and let our faith inform our views? That means, are we willing to be Christ followers first and Republicans or Democrats or whatever your particular flavor is, second? Are we even willing to look at what Jesus teaches and when it comes up against something that's in our favorite party's platform, are we willing to follow him first? Because if you read the Gospels, what you will quickly realize is that Jesus doesn't fit in any political box. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Democrat. He's not a libertarian. He is not a socialist. He doesn't fit nice and neatly into any of our political boxes or categories. And I think the interesting thing is if you read Jesus' story in the Gospels, you see again and again he's given every opportunity to get involved in the political process, and yet he goes in a different direction. You see, there were people coming up to him all the time trying to get him to take a political position. For instance, they come and ask him, what are we supposed to do with taxes? You know, it's... Taxes theft? Is it coercion? Is it something we should be a part of? Or are we like forming our own country and our own system of loyalty? And Jesus just says, my kingdom's not of this world. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. I mean, whose picture is on your money? But give to God what is God's. You don't have to combine these in this way that you're thinking. There's others who really wanted Jesus to accomplish their goals through political means. You know, they wanted Jesus to form a military and show his might. 
They wanted him to overthrow the Roman Empire, which was oppressing the Jewish people. They wanted Jesus to find ways to utilize the government to further his mission. And yet Jesus always went in a different direction. There are many scholars who speculate one of the main reasons that Jesus, who, or Judas, who was Jesus' friend, one of the main reasons that Judas betrayed him was because he was trying to force Jesus' hand into overthrowing the Roman Empire. You know, he thought, well, if I can just get this process moving, it's going to force Jesus to exercise his power and might, and then I'll get what I want. Well, as you read through his story, again and again, you see clearly Jesus didn't fit into our political categories. He refused to hate the people others wanted him to hate. He spoke well of the Samaritans, who were the enemies of the Jewish people, and it completely enraged the political right and religious. And on the other hand, he had dinner one day at Zacchaeus' house, who was cozy with the Roman Empire, and it completely enraged the political left. Well, I love what Pastor Tony Evans says. He says, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Jesus came to introduce and to expand the kingdom of God. And it's a kingdom that is not of this world. And it's not like anything in this world. See, the kingdom of God comes riding on a donkey. It consistently puts others first. It serves, it loves with abandon. The kingdom of God is about sacrifice, not putting our own rights first. But on the other hand, the kingdom of God always raises the bar for how we should behave and how we should obey God. At times, the kingdom of God is at complete odds with both of our political parties. Neither one of them has the corner on being faithful to the Bible or to God's expectations. I love what Pastor Kerry Newhoff says. He says, if you think God has all the same opinions as your favorite political party does, you're probably not worshiping God. Now, that's not at all to say we can't have political convictions, but we have to be awfully careful with how we combine them with our faith. Because I think what we're seeing now throughout our world and throughout our country is that Christians are severely hurting their mission and witness by how we're choosing to engage in politics and how we're choosing to interact with our political opponents. So I think one of the very most important questions that we can always be asking ourselves is whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Now there's an encounter that takes place in the Old Testament between Joshua, who's this important Israelite military commander, and he comes face to face before he heads into battle with an angel of the Lord, a mighty warrior angel. And here's what happens in this interaction. It's Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, 
but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Did you notice Joshua's question of this angel of the Lord, a direct representative of God? He's like, so are you for us? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And the angel says, neither. I'm not taking sides in your political disagreements. My kingdom is bigger than that. I represent the God of the universe. You're standing on his ground and it's holy ground. God refuses to be put in a political box. And you see, the question we should be asking ourselves is not, is Jesus on my side? Instead, the question is, am I on his side? It's really the most important question of all. When it comes to every aspect of our life, when it comes to work, when it comes to home, when it comes to politics, where is our loyalty because he wants our whole life, our whole heart, and all of our focus. Now, one place I think this ability to be united yet disagree politically can be found is within the 12 disciples, the 12 closest friends that Jesus had on earth. Now, numerous times in the Gospels, we get a rundown of who these disciples were, and two stand out. One is Simon the Zealot. And the other is Matthew, the tax collector. Now, when you dig into what that means, you find out that zealots were completely against the government. They wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. They were all about small government. On the other hand, the tax collectors, Matthew. Tax collectors loved the government. They wanted more government because it meant more money in their pocket. See, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector were complete opposite sides of the political spectrum, and yet they remained friends. They remained united in mission. And as far as we can tell, they continued in their positions all throughout their time as Jesus' disciples. And it's because their loyalty was in him first. You see, they model for us that people of various political views can stay united if our allegiance is in Jesus first. Now, of course, we're going to have different opinions and viewpoints about all aspects of the world. But it's completely foolish to be divided over these political convictions, to be divided because of candidates or parties but also we should be very thoughtful about where our agreements might end and our disagreements might start. And so I think the Bible does give us a helpful framework about how to determine where we stand on different views and viewpoints. And I think the best place to start is with the Apostle Paul, influential person in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen he was a powerful religious leader, and he became a follower of Jesus. And he shows us that our starting point, our foundation, 
should be something that he calls the law of Christ. For Paul, what we are bound to follow, no matter what, where there's no leeway, is what Jesus called a great command. We talked about it last week. Jesus says in John 13, 34, love one another as I have loved you. This summarizes Jesus's ethic, his values, his marching orders for us as his followers. When you don't know how to respond, when you don't know where you land, when you're not sure which step to take, this is where you start. How do I best love others? What does love require of me in this situation? Before you send an email, before you have a conversation, before you talk behind someone's back, what does love require? This is the law of Christ. Now, Paul talks about this in many places. One of them is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what he says. Though I am free and belong to no one. And just with that phrase, you think, Paul, you're like a model American, right? I'm free. I'm not beholden to anyone else. But look at what he says. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul's saying, I'm completely free, but I sacrifice that. I give up all my rights in order to point people to the gospel. He goes on and he says, to those not having the law, I became like the one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. Paul knew the law backwards and forwards. He had it all memorized. But his ultimate code, the most important filter for his life is the law of Christ. It means for him that he serves everyone, no matter who they are. Now, he also talks about this in the book of Galatians, a letter to a church. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. When you put other people's needs and concerns first, when you lead with love, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. See, as followers of Jesus, this is our highest standard, our highest calling. It's our non-negotiable. should impact our thinking, our decisions. Living out the law of Christ Loving others as we have first been loved. You know, when someone's hurting or struggling and you take action, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, what that also means is that as followers of Jesus, part of God's kingdom, we should be similarly disturbed, frustrated, bothered, irritated even by the exact same things. When we encounter injustice, when we see people making destructive decisions, when people are acting selfishly and it hurts others, the law of Christ should guide our conscience each and every day. Now, I think this is seen all throughout history, where when someone's conscience is impacted by the law of Christ, history actually changes. For instance, Aristotle 
who lived in the fourth century BC, wrote about how some people are destined to be slaves. And it's just everybody agreed with that, that awful position. Well, in the fourth century AD, St. Augustine, who was a Christ follower, wrote that slavery is always the result of sin and evil. See, his conscience is impacted by the law of Christ. And even though it took many, many, many more centuries to come to pass around the world, it was that faith in Jesus and that love ethic that changed history. Another example is that for many centuries, it was just common practice that you could kill a baby whenever you wanted. If you had a child and you thought, I can't raise this, I don't want to raise, you could just leave them on the street corner to die. It was just an acceptable way to live. Well, the Emperor Constantine in the year 318 became a Christian, and one of the very first declarations he made was it was illegal in his kingdom to ever kill an infant from then on because of his faith, because of the law of Christ. When the law of Christ impacts our conscience, it changes our thinking. So we should always start with that filter, with that foundation. But then, of course, we need to add in things like knowledge and wisdom and experience. Over time, as a people, we have gained knowledge in how the world works, and we gain wisdom from experience. And it's a long process. And it's why when you read the Old Testament sometime, you're like, what in the world is wrong with these people? Why don't they make better decisions? Why would they ever do this to each other? It's a long arc of history of gaining knowledge in the way that the world works and wisdom and experience. So we need to start with the law of Christ and let it guide our conscience. And we need to add knowledge and wisdom and experience. And all together, that should lead us to policies and platform and legislation But here's the thing, church, when it comes to policies and platforms and legislation, there will always be disagreement among Christians. And why is that? I think one of the big reasons is where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you stand on an issue or a view depends a lot on where you sit. This is called the Miles Law. It's named after a man named Rufus Miles, who was in the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administrations. What he's saying is our cultural context, it's where we sit, determines our perspective, which is where we stand. See, the truth is, your political views were not formed in a vacuum. And recognizing this, admitting this, is our way forward. It's a step towards unity and away from division and even demonization. It's a way that we can move forward in unity, even with very diverse political views. You see, your political views and viewpoints, just like all of your views and viewpoints, are formed by all sorts of different experiences, many which you have absolutely no control over. Things like where you live, how you were raised, where you were educated, how much you were educated, what you were told, what you've experienced, who you've listened to. Where you stand 
depends on where you sit. So how do we move forward? How do we move forward when it's so easy to just retreat to our own corners and only listen to the cable news network that we already agree with and surround ourselves with people who always agree with us? Well, last week I challenged you at the end of the service to go into this week and love someone unconditionally that you disagree with politically. And I said, if you can't think of that person, if you don't have a close relationship with someone who disagrees with you, maybe that's the problem. We tend to surround ourselves with people who tell us we're right and tell us our opponents are wrong. Did you know social media algorithms are specially designed to just find you more content you already agree with? So we just sit around thinking we're right, everyone else is wrong, and we don't actually get to know people who are different than us. So as we close out our time together today, I want to give you three ways forward. Three things that I think we need to put into practice in our life that can help bring unity and can help dispel all the division that we're experiencing today. So number one, be willing to listen. Listen to people who experience the world different than you. Different socioeconomic class, different race, different generation, different lifestyle. Just listen to their story. That's it. Now just to be clear, listening means resisting the temptation to talk or argue or diminish their experience. You know, something I've noticed as we have dug into racial issues in our society in the past couple months is oftentimes we have the tendency to try to explain people's feelings away. You know, someone shares how they feel and we say, well, that's not true. Or let me show you a statistic. It's something I learned in counseling classes and I'm still trying to learn today. The proper and only response to someone sharing their feelings is to say, tell me more about that. That must be really difficult for you. Tell me more about that experience, about how you're feeling, because I think we need more empathy all throughout our country. Number one, be willing to listen. Number two, be willing to learn. We should be the most curious people around about all of God's creation. Don't be afraid to learn new things, to reevaluate long-held positions. We should be students and not critics. Being a student means opening yourself up to other ideas and other opinions. You know, just ask yourself, do you tend to find yourself only watching and reading and absorbing one political perspective? You know, as a pastor here at church, I get all sorts of emails every week, and a lot of these emails lately have been articles. Bless you if you send those to me. The thing that stands out to me, though, as I get all of these different articles from people, mostly political, it always stands out to me when someone sends me an article from one perspective and then another. Because usually it's all one line of thinking. You know, when somebody sends me a New York Times article and then they send me a New York Post article, I take notice. It's someone who's a student who's trying to see things from different sides. And I think what we often do, though, is we take a conclusion and we try to fit it into our own box. Here's the thing, church. Your Republican brothers and sisters are not crazy 
or evil. And your democratic brothers and sisters are not crazy and they're not evil. And neither side hates America. And if you actually would stop to get to know someone who disagrees with you, you'd find out we have a whole lot more in common than we don't. And most often what people are doing is they're taking a stand based on where they sit. Be willing to learn. And then number three, be willing to love. Never, ever, ever burn a bridge or a relationship over a political view. Here's the way we need to put it. The you beside you is more precious to God than your potentially flawed view. The Bible says in Romans, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. So how dare you, how dare I ever burn a relational bridge with someone Christ died for? So listen, learn, and love. That's our second talking point. We will listen, learn, and love. Now, one part of loving people is refusing to label them. I had a professor one time who said, we need to stop essentializing people. And what he meant is when we can label someone and say, you know, essentially they're just a conservative or essentially they're just a liberal, what we do is we sum them up and then we put them in a box and then we can dismiss them easier. When we can label someone and say, essentially you're just this, we sum them up and then we write them off. We need to stop labeling, stop essentializing, because that person in front of you, who you might disagree with in all sorts of ways, is created in the image of God. That person's core identity is that they are a child of God, even if they vote differently than you. Church, one of the most important things God gives to us is the gift of influence. We have the ability to impact and influence others for the kingdom. The most important influence you can ever have in someone's life is to point them to the hope we have in Jesus. And so why would we ever, ever lose that influence by trying to fight a temporary battle over politics? When we choose to attack someone or demean someone, we lose our chance to influence them with the hope of Jesus. So, so tragic because it's picking something so temporary and fleeting over something that's eternal and significant. Thing is, this was the ethic of the early church. Liberals and conservatives working together and everything in between. And they were pulled by the Roman Empire on one side and the Jewish temple system on the other side and they stayed devoted to God. When we read history, the Roman Empire didn't last the temple system didn't last. Caesar, who thought he was a god on earth, is just a footnote in the story of a carpenter who became a rabbi and gave his life on a cross for you and for me. And Jesus built his church and he said, even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so empires have come and gone. Evil kings and evil rulers have come and gone. Bad policies, horrible laws, they've all come and gone. But his church remains. So we have the opportunity 
as we go into our week, we have the opportunity to model for the world what it looks like to disagree politically and yet love unconditionally. And we have the opportunity to go into this week and remain committed to learning, listening, and loving. And all the while, we can influence people about the hope that we have in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks that you are a God of unity. You are a God of love. That you have called us to model your kind of love, your sacrificial love to the world. God, you know how often we get off track, how easily we're divided, how easily we lose focus, how easily we put our loyalty in the wrong place. So God, we confess that. We ask your Holy Spirit to come in and fill us and to bring us unity. Not unity in our politics, but unity in our love and unity in our focus on accomplishing your mission. God, help us to impact and influence the world for you. Help us to love others well. So God, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people say together.